Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. Welcome, I'm your host Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. After participating in my first Christmas bird count with Dan Weiss, I asked him to join me for a shorter episode to share some information about bird counts and other forms of tracking bird sightings to make them a little more accessible to those who might be curious about them. The western bluebird was chosen for this episode, as it was the last bird we counted that day. I hope you can spend some time with family and friends during the holidays, and you can look forward to a new episode mid-January. Today my guest is Dan Weiss, a returning guest from episode 2. When Dan isn't outdoors taking pictures of wildlife, he's volunteering at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum's Raptor Free Flight Program. As a narrator and bird handler, Dan also participates in the Audubon Christmas Bird Count, which is what we'll be talking about today. It's good to have you back, Dan. Thank you. It's nice to be here. During this time of year, Christmas bird counts are happening all across the country. The specific one that you participate in took place earlier this week on the 14th. I appreciate you letting me tag along. Can you tell our listeners what the purpose of a bird count is just in general? So the, the Christmas bird counts were established over 100 years ago, beginning in 1900, as a reaction to something that was going on at that time. At that time in America, on Christmas Day, there was an annual bird hunt, and people would compete to see how many individual birds they could shoot and kill, whether they were going to use the meat or the bodies for anything. The conservation movement was beginning at that time as a reaction to the loss of birds they were seeing. And in 1900, uh, some ornithologists established what they called a Christmas bird count, which was to say, well, let's go out and look for birds, see how many we see and count them. Mm. So the Christmas bird counts have evolved since then. But the idea is to get a, a general census of the population of birds in the area that you live in each year at this time. Hmm. So then the key difference between a Christmas bird count and any other bird count would simply be the time of year and the birds we see at this time of year? And how it's used. There are several different citizen science opportunities for people to contribute their bird counts to general scientists. But the Christmas bird count is done annually in the same locations year after year. So you can start to see population trends within bird species. And that information is very useful to be able to look at long, long range planning on what's happening with the birds in our area. Sure. For this particular bird count, how did you get started? So I've known about the Christmas bird count for many years, but when I retired uh, eight years ago now and began having opportunities to do things during the workday, for example, yes. uh, the count came up and a friend of mine who was running a sector asked if I could come along with her. So that's how I began helping out, sort of one year at a time, one count at a time. Mm. So then you've been conducting these for seven or eight years now, huh? Pretty much, pretty consistently, yes. Just to help listeners understand, are you covering a half-mile plot? Are you covering a 10-mile plot? How does that work? So the, the parameters for the Christmas bird count are established that wherever people begin a count, they create what's called a count circle. And so mm -hmm. that's a circle with a 15-mile diameter. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't change from year to year. That is the count circle where you're going to be studying birds and taking a census every year. Mm. In southern Arizona alone, which is a birding hotspot in the country, there are 17 bird counts that happen. Mm. 
Every Christmas bird count happens during the same time of year, between December 14th and January 5th. Okay. And again, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of count circles throughout the United States. Yeah. Within each count circle, the person who's running it has established uh, different sections for people to count. And it kind of depends on how many people can participate, what areas are birdier or less birdier but they create different sections or sectors that they assign to different people. And from year to year, they try to establish the bird counts within each section. And it's just a way of managing a circle with a 15-mile diameter and having some sense or order or consistency to the, the count that's done year after year. Okay. Since this was my first bird count, I wasn't sure what to expect. I brought my binoculars, a camera, some water, with a plan to pay close attention to my surroundings. Uh, the two hours we spent at both of the sites we visited flew right by. While I can't think of anything in particular that stuck out in my mind, it was a very relaxing time, not much different from just birding. Although I did find it amusing to count that group of morning doves because now I have a better idea of what 32 birds in one place looks like. Uh -huh. uh, what do you enjoy about these counts? Well, for me, it's just a matter of, of going out and birding uh, like I do throughout the year at different times. So you go out with friends and you look for birds. And, but this time what we know is the information that we gather is going to be compiled and will be useful uh, for a greater good. The area that I was assigned to manage a couple of years ago is a very large area. It encompasses a huge geographical area. Uh, for those of you from Tucson, we run basically from Oracle Road west to La Choya and approximately River Road on up to McGee. That's a huge chunk of land. Yeah. And so we can't cover every single street and every single tree and bush, but we look at the areas that may have the most birds in it. And I go out with friends and we bird one area in the morning. Um, uh, we do some other areas that you joined us with in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And then for my area, there uh, there's a place, Tohono Chul Park, mm -hmm. where uh, I have friends who are docents, and they volunteer to be part of our birding team, and they do a count specifically at the park. So mm -hmm. it's just how I'm managing my particular group. Yeah. And again, my focus is not to go from day, you know, sunup to sundown, yeah. frenetically finding every single bird I can, but it's just to do some good bird walks with friends and see what we see. Hmm. During the count and the two sites we visited, we saw some house sparrows, morning doves, vermilion flycatchers, Gila woodpeckers, western bluebirds, the small family of Harris hawks, and that Abert's tohi at the end. Mm -hmm. Were there any birds that you normally see at these sites that we did not see during this count? You know, I, I haven't really compared this year's count numbers to last year, so mm -hmm. it's hard to know. Um, the numbers do vary because birds flock and move around sections pretty regularly. And the fields that we were at are not a primary magnet on their own. Yeah. So last year we had different other sparrows that were clustered under certain trees that we just didn't see this year. Mm. But on the areas that we counted with you, we, we found some western bluebirds. We found a northern mockingbird, which isn't an unusual bird, but was the first one for my count section mm. uh, this year. So um, you just look forward to seeing what you can see at that time. And, and the numbers all add up at the end of the day. Yeah. If any of our listeners here in Tucson would like to get involved with the Christmas bird count, where should they start? The best place to look is on the Tucson Audubon Society web pages. And there is a page dedicated to bird counts. There are still more bird counts happening between now and January 5th. But they will happen again next year during the same two-week period. People can go online, look at those sites, and they list who the group leader is. Mm -hmm. And they can contact the leader to see whether they still need help. It's also important for listeners to know you don't have to be a spectacular birder to do this. In fact, Audubon 
Audubon Society hopes that new birders, beginning people, join up with the other groups so that they can learn what birding is about and see that there are uh, normal, regular people who are birders and that it's a good way to be outdoors and out in nature and learn to appreciate what we have around us. So I would check websites. Uh, National Audubon Society also has a, a page where you can uh, enter your zip code and they'll show you what bird accounts are happening in your part of the world and, again, give you links to uh, meet up with the leaders of those bird counts. So wherever they live, the National Audubon Society is a good place to start to find local bird counts. Yes. And you can just, you know, Google bird count in my area, Audubon Society, and that should help get you there. All right. Another option I was looking at when I was looking at other ways to count birds was Cornell's Project Feeder Watch. Have mm -hmm. you had any experience with that? I'm aware of it, but I haven't participated ever. So I went and read up a little bit on it. It's something that people can do at their homes or at any other site. It looks like the requirements are simply picking a place to count birds and then two days a week that are consecutive each week. And that period of time runs from November to April 30th of the next year. So it's about a six-month period of time where they just count on these two days at the same exact site. And it's called Project Feeder Watch because mm -hmm. they assume you'll be near some sort of feeder. When I was looking at some of the parameters of the count, like what you count, what you don't count, they did say it was okay to count birds attracted to food or water, fruits or plantings, and even the predatory birds that might come to your site because of your feeders mm -hmm. for the other birds that are there. And they said just not to count birds that were flying overhead or birds you see at other times of the week. So it seems like a pretty simple thing. One of the things attached to it is a price. It's an $18 fee for that period of time. And they give you access to some different resources and a place to upload your data. So if somebody was looking for something that they could do at their home that was a little more formal, similar to a bird count, they could do something like this. And then I also saw that if you wanted something less formal, you can always just track sightings on eBird at the checklist. Whichever level I think people choose to participate at, whether it's one of the annual bird counts, Project Feeder Watch, or an eBird checklist, they're going to be contributing data that helps the entire birding community. Yes, and that's what's important, and I think what the goals are. Uh, there are scientific studies being done that have different parameters. These things that you mentioned are what we call citizen science, and basically it's enlisting volunteers throughout the world, throughout communities in the United States, to participate in figuring out what we have living around us, in this case, what birds we have in our neighborhood and contributing. And all of this data is collected and uh, gives us an overall sense of what's happening in different locations. So, And I think the point is we want people to be, become more aware of the birds and mm -hmm. nature around them and then to participate in sharing what they see and what they know with others. In the past few years, as I've gotten more and more into birding, the more people I've encountered, I've noticed that there's some people that are listers. Mm -hmm. Some people really want to track. They want to count the number of species, maybe the number they've seen each day. That's so why I thought this would be helpful to differentiate for people that there's a couple levels you could participate at if you want it to be really formal about it or not so formal. But then, like you said, it's great just to get out there and bird. That is also helpful just to boost awareness of mm -hmm. these wonderful flying creatures around us. That's the whole idea. Going back to something we mentioned earlier, the last bird we counted for the day was the western bluebird, mm -hmm. which is always a treat to see with its vibrant blue appearance. And for this episode, you're going to tell us a little bit more about it. I noticed that they returned to the areas I've birded only in the past few weeks. Before that, I hadn't really seen them. Mm -hmm. Why do we only see these birds around this time of year? Well, western bluebirds where we live 
are like many birds throughout the world is they live where they can find food and shelter and survive. And we know the concept about birds migrating. Some birds migrate, some birds don't. Some birds migrate huge distances. Some birds stay in the same general neighborhood year round. And migration primarily is based on, is there enough food for me to survive on? Yeah. And for Western bluebirds in the Tucson area, they don't live at the desert level throughout the summer. They will live at higher elevations, uh, at the upper elevations of mountains, mm -hmm. or, or even uh, you know in the upper half of Arizona along the rim and north country that is not desert. But when winter comes and insect prey goes underground, they will move to a climate where there's more food available. And in the Tucson area, they've got a lot of variety of seeds and fruits. You know, the fruits, not the fruits that we eat at the grocery store, but the little berries and, and fruits from different trees and vegetation. So winter time is when you can see western bluebirds in the Tucson area. They're fairly common, but not in large numbers. Mm -hmm. But if you're at almost any kind of park or open field that has trees and, and sort of wooded areas adjacent to it, there's a good chance you'll find some bluebirds flying from the trees to the ground to feed and then back up into the trees to hang out for a little bit and back and forth. Uh, they're delightful birds. The blue color is just spectacular. And they're a fun bird to see every winter. Yeah. Speaking of that color, the first reason I noticed bluebirds had returned, these western bluebirds, was their call. Because it was different from the birds I usually hear mm -hmm. in that area. But the next thing I noticed was their bright blue feathering, which is not really blue. Can you tell us a little more about that? Um, what I learned by reading, and again, I'm, I'm not an expert, is that blue doesn't exist as a pigment in bird feathers. It, mm. it doesn't exist as a pigment. So it's not a color where you look at it and say, that's colored a certain color. The blue that we see in birds is similar to the colors that we see on a male hummingbird's uh, gorget. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Mm. And it's a color created by light uh, breaking apart because of the feather structure, that light will hit the feather structure. And much like a prism breaks up light, the feathers are structured to break up light so that what we see is the blue part of the color spectrum. Hmm. Just like the sky itself looks blue, but it's sure. not really a blue. If you grab sky and held it in your hand, it's not blue. It's yes. how it, the light looks filtering through it. Um, so that's one of the fascinating thing about bluebirds because they sure look blue, yes. but they aren't blue. It's yeah. just the light that we're seeing bouncing through their feathers and coming back at us is bluish. Hmm. It's a delightful color, you know, throughout societies. Blue is a calming positive kind of influence. It, all the feelings and emotions associated with blue with blue color are good ones. And bluebirds are delightful to see. But you're not you're not seeing a blue pigment. You're seeing what looks blue. Yes. That's interesting. One of my assumptions seeing western bluebirds at this time of year is assuming that they migrate from some other northern state. But that isn't really the case, is it? No, I think my first impression or understanding was bird migration meant birds head up north during the summertime to breed and they head south for warmer climates in the wintertime. And that does happen for very many birds, about half of the species. Some birds are well suited for the ranges they live in and stay there year round. And some need to change ranges primarily to get food sources. But there are birds like western bluebirds who are seasonal in Tucson. And what I've learned and continue to learn is that how they change habitat in season is not necessarily by traveling a thousand miles north or south. Mm. Western bluebirds are birds that basically change elevation 
depending on the season. So in southeastern Arizona, you'll find those above 7,000 foot elevation in the mountain ranges around the Tucson area in southeastern Arizona. And in the wintertime, when their food sources diminish at higher elevations, they come down to lower elevations, including the Tucson Valley. And so they, they sort of migrate up and down to their summer cabins in the mountains and come down to their winter homes in Tucson rather than traveling thousands of miles like many other bird species do. Yeah. One of the things I noticed with some of these different resources when we look at range maps and elevations for birds is that sometimes they don't line up. They can be different. Mm -hmm. Why aren't they the same? In general, they, they sort of overlap, but there isn't any consistent rule that everyone in the world follows for those things. And mm -hmm. bird ranges are nuanced, too. You may have birds slowly changing ranges based on climate change. And there are studies that are showing that birds are rapidly changing where they live year in and year out and where they breed year in and year out because of that. Some changes may be seasonal. Some people who create range maps interpret the data differently, and so they color their maps a little differently. So it's important to look at a lot of different resources when you're trying to figure out what birds you're looking at in your neighborhood or what bird might be available, and take in a lot of information and then just go out and look and see what you can see. Yeah. When we talk about where they choose to stay at different times of the year, one of the things that comes up is nesting. Where do they choose to nest? When I was reading up on them, I noticed that they typically nest in cavities, which is something that is a little competitive. Uh, when I was looking at local birds, European starlings and house sparrows were competing for those same cavities. So it seems like it would be a little rough for these western bluebirds having to compete with all these other species for those cavities for their nest. I also saw that they collected twigs, grass, to build their nest, and that sometimes they might have as many as two to eight eggs that are usually blue in color. When we were talking off-air, you mentioned something about a portion of those being from a different male. Uh, I thought that was very interesting, and we didn't really come to a conclusion there, but I thought that was odd that out of that span of two to eight eggs, a portion of those was from a completely different male. Well, nature works in mysterious ways, and we humans are just uh, continuing to learn as much as we can, and we just know a small portion of what happens out in the world. But I think all bird species and all animals and plant life, their, their goal is to continue to propagate the species and continue to live. And uh, different birds have different habits that they have come to over the millennium that allow them to continue to live where they live. And uh, we're just, we can't fit everything into our definitions of what, you know, how to raise kids or how to, how many eggs to have. Uh, we just can look and learn and try to study things around us to gain more insight. Yes, and understand a little more. To close, I just wanted to touch a little bit on one of the things that occupies quite a bit of your time, and mm -hmm. that's taking pictures of wildlife. Mm -hmm. At this time of year, we see these other migrant birds, some new birds. Recently, when you've gone out birding, have you been able to take pictures of any birds that caught your attention? Well, over the last few weeks, uh, two birds that I've been happy to get some decent pictures of are birds that are winter visitors to Tucson. Uh, one is the Lawrence's goldfinch. Mm -hmm. uh, many people know about lesser goldfinches, which is a really nice backyard bird that you can attract pretty easily by hanging a Niger seed sock or Niger seed, thistle seed feeder. And Lawrence's are... Uh, related, but they look very strikingly different. Mm. And they're here in the Tucson area in the 
winter times in different little numbers, and I just have not been able to see very many of them. But this year, the last three or four times I've gone out, I've seen them, seen a number of the males and females, and been able to take some pictures. So, mm. you know, I love the opportunity to both see and to photograph birds that are kind of new for me. Yeah. Um, the western bluebird is another example of that. I know they've always been around in the winters, uh, but they're sort of hard to catch, and they're, they don't sit in one spot a long time for you. They're always flitting back and forth between the trees and the, the open land or grass. Um, but I've been able to go to a local park and uh, get some good, fun pictures of western bluebirds as well. So I'm, I'm enjoying those winter species and know that they won't be here in April or May when I'm out and around, and uh, I'm glad they're here at this point. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed when I take pictures of certain birds, the birds that are here all year round, I've gotten better at identifying where they like to stay, their behavior, how they move about from branch to branch Mm -hmm. or from trees to the ground. And I can kind of set myself up in a place to capture a moment, uh, capture a good picture. But with migrant birds, I don't have that same opportunity to necessarily observe their behavior and understand where they might be, how they move. So it's a little bit more challenging because I can't prepare for it as Mm -hmm. I would another bird. Do you have any way that you prepare for that, for seeing a completely different bird that you don't see the rest of the year? You know, like everything else, uh, you get out of something based on the amount of time and work you put into it ahead of time. Sometimes you can just stumble across a new wintering bird that is there right in front of you. But you can read a variety of sources to see where they, what habitat they like to live in during the winter time. There are resources from local Audubon societies about rare bird alerts or good birding spots to go to to see certain birds at the winter time. Birds have wings, so they're not always going to be in the <laughs> same place all the time. But if you spend more time looking and studying and checking resources, and you spend more time in the field, you increase your odds of seeing them and you increase the knowledge that you have about where you're likely to see them and where they're likely to be hanging out and living during the winter. That's reasonable. Did you consult any specific resources before looking for those Lawrence's goldfinches? So those I happen to see on on one or two birding trips that I do monthly, as well as on our Christmas bird count along mm-hmm. the Rito River. That was a real treat to see that. Uh, my sister-in-law got a great picture of three finch species in, in one spot together. Oh, wow. Lawrence's goldfinch sitting next to a lesser goldfinch ne- sitting next to a house finch. So that was great for comparison. Recently, though, I had read on the rare bird alerts about the Lawrence's being seen at Fort Lowell Park. Hmm. So I went there and found a spot that felt like it was a good spot and was rewarded for my efforts there. So it was using resources and, and knowing of some places to go along with a little bit of luck. <laughs> That's wonderful you're able to see those. Yeah. I've still yet to see one. I'll have to do a little more research <laughs> so I can. I'd like to thank Dan for joining us again. And I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, for more from Dan, please check out episode two, where he shares more about himself and the great horned owl. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you are listening to this episode from. If you're listening on Apple, I would appreciate it if you left a rating or review to help more people discover the podcast. For pictures of the Western Bluebird and some of the other birds we saw on the count, please check out the podcast Instagram and follow it at Looking at Birds Podcast. Until next time, keep looking at birds.